Let's give Derek a warm welcome. Thank you. Let me do this. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Ah, this is nice. Um, guys, there is an elephant in the room, and um, we should go ahead and address that. Um, so I will say that when I first got the invitation to speak, is this too loud for you guys? Okay. When I got the invitation to speak um, here at this conference, I was kind of like, hmm. A married man speaking at a singles conference, how is that going to work? And so I was depressed, and I started praying, and I started processing with one of my good friends. She's older, and she's single, and I was just like, they invited me to come speak at a singles conference, and I'm married. What in the heck can I provide for these people? What can I say? They're going to hate me. They're not going to receive me. And so I'm just like really, really nervous, and like, but I'm going to take it to Jesus, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray. And I just sit down with her, and she's like, dude, you're great for this. And I'm like, I'm missing something. Why am I great for this? And she's like, I think you're thinking how society thinks. Society has done a great job at separating married people and single people. So single people only hang out with single people and spend a lot of time over there. And married people hang out with married people. And it's almost as if the lives don't intersect and we're a unified body where we come together, encourage each other, challenge each other. And it's basically like the word of God does not discriminate. Married people can speak into the lives of single people and single people can speak into the lives of married people. And I'm like, wow, you better preach that, girl. I'm going to this conference. Amen. <laughs> so here I am, a married man. Um, and as Hillary said, like, I'm really passionate about preaching God's word and encouraging God's people. I believe that God has given me that as a gift to steward, and I want to steward that well. But also, I'm excited to be here just to encourage you all. I feel like in the years of being in ministry, um, the church has not done a good job with singles. Um, every year, there's probably a million marriage conferences that take place across the world. But even as Pastor Ethan said this morning, you just don't find many single conferences it's almost as if singles are ostracized in the church and they're, they're left alone and they're this subpopulation. Um, and so I kind of want to come today and just speak the word of God over you all today and encourage you um, in what God has to say to you. And so if you have your Bibles, would you take them out and meet with me in John chapter 9? The Gospel of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, when you get there, say, I'm there. Amen to that. <laughs> There's always one person that's 10 minutes into the sermon. I'm there. This is okay, no judgment. The Gospel of John chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Um, so some of you may know this if you know, um, know me well. I grew up at about an hour and 40 minutes from here in a small town called Godwin. Um, grew up on a farm where um, my grandparents and uncles and aunts, they owned a lot of cash crops, and so we had tobacco and cotton and uh, corn. And so I grew up playing hide-and-go-seek in cornfields. Um, we had BB guns, and so we shot each other with BB guns and paintball guns. That, that's just what we did. That was our hobby. Um, we had pigs, and so it was my house and then my uncle's house, and then we had like a pig farm. And so as a young kid, I was very dumb. I did not know that when I was out playing with the pigs and naming them, and they were becoming my friends, that we were also slaughtering them, <laughs> selling them, and eating them. <laughs> and so we had these things called pig pickings. 
And it's basically you kill the pig and you put the whole pig on a grill and you literally walk up to it with a fork and you just start picking off meat. And it's like, it's a gift from God. Amen. Swine is a gift from God. Bacon is a gift from the Lord. And my wife just recently gave up eating red meat. And she is eating turkey bacon. And I'm like, turkey bacon? That is fake. It is not good. Bacon is from God. Pork bacon is from God. Turkey bacon is a part of the fall. Amen. It's Satan. It's Satan. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. It's Satan. But so that's kind of how I grew up. I grew up in um, a very religious or moral home where on Wednesdays and Sundays, man, we were the most spiritual people. I mean, we, we were very stoic in our Baptist church. We sang the hymns. But the rest of the week, we were like sinners. We did not follow Jesus, but we had this appearance of, of godliness. And I grew up in a home that was very dysfunctional. Um, my mother got pregnant out of wedlock. She had just finished up her senior year in high school. She was dating my dad one time, and she got pregnant. And my grandfather was a deacon and a leader in our Baptist church. And so for him, that's a no-no. All of his children got married and had kids except for this one daughter, she got pregnant out of wedlock. And so he packed up her bags, disowned her, and relocated her to a small town. And so now my mom and I are living in a small town called Dunn, North Carolina. I'm a single parent home. I'm watching my mom work two jobs, working really hard. And then she enters into another relationship with another man. She's vowed to get married to him. She's engaged. She gets pregnant before they get married. And then the relationship is over. I just see her in this vicious cycle of constantly being in and out of relationships with different men. And I was angry because I'm looking at my life and I'm like, this is not what I want. My father left me at a young age. He was an alcoholic. He was abusive physically and verbally. And I didn't want that life. And I was frustrated with God because I grew up in a church where every Sunday I would hear Christians say, God is so good. All the time, God is good. And for me, I'm like, no, God can't be good because I'm suffering. God can't be good because there's pain in my life. And so I was frustrated with God. I was angry with God. I remember being in high school and hearing my friends talk about family vacation. And they would come to school and say, yeah, we just went to Disney World and we had a great time. Or, yeah, we just went to the island. We went here. And I'm like, man, we don't get to do that. Or they'll talk about family game nights. And they'll talk about how they sat around the dinner table together as a family and ate a meal together. And I just remember being jealous and angry of them and with God thinking, this is what I want. I just want my dad to be here. I just want a normal family. I just want my dad to come to my basketball games and support me. I dreamed of being a little kid running to my dad and him picking me up and throwing me in the air and smiling at me. I dreamed of the words, Daddy, I, uh, son, I'm proud of you. I love you. That is what I longed for. And I never got it. As I got older, I became more and more bitter towards God. And I hated God. And I can vividly remember the day where I was like, God, I am done with you because you're not real. The life that I dreamed of, what I so desperately wanted, God was not giving it to me. And I was mad. 
Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where you were so frustrated with God and so angry with God because God was not giving you what you desired? Something that you have possibly dreamed for all your life and it's not here, it's not happening, and you are mad with God. For me, the story that I always wanted, I never got. And I suddenly realized that I wasn't the author of my narrative. That I didn't have control over the story that was being written. That God was sovereign and that he was in control of the narrative that was being written for my life. What do you do when God is writing the story? When he's in control of your life? What do you do when the life you've dreamed of seems to be so far away and unattainable? When the narrative that has been written for your life is filled with pain and suffering and heartache, and frustration. What do you do? Because there's one truth about all of us in the room today, and it has nothing to do with our relationship status. It's that every person in this room has a story. We all have a story. There is a story being told through our lives. And for some of you, that story includes divorce. For others of you, that story includes abuse or a relationship that ended due to a cheating partner. For some of you, that story includes same-sex attraction. For others of you, that's an unwanted pregnancy. Maybe you're here this afternoon and you're a widow. Maybe you're here today and there's sexual purity struggles in your life. Maybe you're here today and you're single and discontent, or single and just content in Jesus. There is a story being told through your life. We all have a story, and here's the thing. It's your story, his glory. Your story is being told for the glory of God, and that's what I want to talk about this afternoon. Your story, his glory. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you today um, just acknowledging how you are good, that you are gracious, and that you are loving. God, the fact that we have breath in our lungs this morning is a sign of your mercy. It's a sign that you have a purpose and a plan for our life and you're not done with us yet. And you are perfecting that in and through us. And so, God, we praise you for the breath that we have in our lungs. God, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit afresh as I share on this topic. God, I pray that those who have come in today who are heavy burdened, that you will lift the heavy burdens. God, you are a chain breaker. You destroy yokes. You set the captives free. You open the eyes of the blind. You heal the sick. You raise the dead. You are powerful. You are almighty. You are kind and gentle and patient and loving and steadfast. And so, God, would you reveal yourself to us today that we might leave here today encouraged, strengthened, and better worshipers of Jesus. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 9. So the Apostle John, he wrote the book, um, John, I think that's a, a given, and he wrote the book with one purpose in mind. The whole theme of the Gospel of John is this. It says that the word of God, Jesus Christ, has come, full of flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, and he's come to dwell amongst unclean people and sinners. John 1.14 puts it this way, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt. The Greek word for this word dwelt is skenu, 
which means Jesus Christ came to intimately commune with people. He came to commune with us that we might see his glory, his greatness, his splendor, his beauty, his radiance, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the running theme all throughout John is Jesus Christ is here. He left the comforts of heaven and he is here. The Messiah has come. And so what we see in John chapter 2 is the Messiah has come to show us that he hates injustice. In John chapter 3, we see that the Messiah has come to die on the cross for the sins of the world. In chapter 4, the Messiah has come to wipe away all of our shame, guilt, and condemnation. In chapter 5, the Messiah has come to show us that he has power over sickness. In chapter 6, he comes to fulfill us. In chapter 7, he comes to reveal that he's the only one that can satisfy. In chapter 8, he comes to reveal to us that he is full of grace and truth. And now we get to chapter 9, our main text. And let me acknowledge, this text has nothing to do with singleness, nothing at all to do with singleness. But what I love about this text is that there are two truths that I'm going to pull out from this text that can be applied to singleness. Two truths that I'm going to pull out from this text to be applied to singleness. And my goal throughout this sermon is to help us to reorient our hearts to see that marriage is not the chief end of life. That if I'm real with you, it's not all that. It's labor. It's work. I mean, it's, it's draining. It's taxing. And if my wife was here, she would take off a shoe and throw it. But <laughs> real talk, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of work. There are days where I'm like, ah, everybody just go away. I just wish I was alone. I mean, that's just how I feel. And so I want you guys to see that marriage is not the chief goal. You were not created and placed on this earth to be married. That is not God's ultimate purpose for your life. And so I want to help you see that through this text, because I want you to see, as Katie would say this morning, I want you to see the bigger picture, that God is working something in you and he's working something through you for the glory of his name. Verse 1. It says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Everybody say saw. He saw a man blind from birth. Let's pause there for a minute. I love this because I'm reading this and I'm like, man, Jesus was always out and about. He was always walking. And so as he's en route to somewhere, the scripture says that he sees a blind man. This blind man is sitting beside the road. And for some reason, this blind man catches Jesus' attention and Jesus begins to interact with him. And as I'm reading the text, the word saw, it keeps jumping out at me. I'm like, wow, Jesus saw him. That's my first point. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. So often in my life, guys, I feel like Jesus does not see me. So often I'm like, God, you're not doing this. God, I'm frustrated. God, I'm angry. God, I'm suffering. God, I'm full of pain. God, you must have forgotten about me. God, you don't love me. God, what must I do to get your attention? You're doing this over here. This person just got a bigger house. This person just bought a new car. This person just got a promotion. This family just had another kid. God, we've been praying. We've been asking. God, you're not doing it. What about me, 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 me? Hey, God, do you see me over here lonely and insane? secure and desperate and need your help? What about me? And I feel like that often in my life. And what I see in verse one is that Jesus sees. He sees you. He cares about you. You are important to him. You are so important to Jesus that the scripture says that he came to dwell among unclean people. He sees you. He cares about you. So often we develop 
what we believe about God based upon our feelings. For example, if you feel lonely, if you're frustrated, if you're despairing, then oftentimes you say, well, God, you don't love me. God, you you must be punishing me. God, you're not real. And what I want to say to you is that Jesus' character does not change. God's character does not change. He is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. He loves you. He cares about you. He sees you. He knows the depths of your soul. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And for me, that is zero. And he knows that. Amen to any bald people in the house. But I'm probably the only one. So awkward moment. Let's keep going. But he sees you. He sees you. Verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, And put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. This is the most awkward story. There are a lot of awkward stories in the Bible, but this is one of them. Here you find this blind man that Jesus is about to heal. And Jesus spits in his hand, and I'm like, dude, you can heal me, but real talk. I don't want your spit and then mud and then you smacking it on my face to heal me. But nevertheless, Jesus healed the man. The man went home seeing. He wasn't complaining about spit and mud. He's just happy he can see. But Jesus heals him. No one knows why he was born blind. And the disciples want to know. They have questions and they want answers. The disciples see that Jesus is interacting with this man and giving him attention, and they roll up on the scene, and they're like, wait a minute, Jesus is interacting with this blind man. And the first thing that comes out of their mouth is like, yo, Jesus, who's saying, this man or his parents? It's like, wait a minute, you're being rude, disciples. Let's, let's, let's think about this for a minute. You have a blind man. He was blind since birth. He was known as the blind beggar. He sat by a road day in and day out begging. And people most likely saw him on the roadside and dismissed him. Oh, that's just the blind beggar. Don't pay him any attention. Ignore him. He was dehumanized. There was shame most likely associated with his blindness, frustration, anger, hopelessness. Day in and day out, he sat by the roadside begging. So much so that he was known as the blind beggar, and people dismissed him. And Jesus, walking, sees this man in his current state and begins to interact with him. And the first thing that comes out of the disciples' mouths is nothing of compassion and sensitivity, but rudeness. Who sinned, Jesus, this man or his parents? It's almost like being single and hearing the question over and over and over, Are you still single? Why are you not dating? Why do you not have a girlfriend? Why do you not have a boyfriend? Do you not want to be married? Are you not looking for your Boaz? I mean, like, you hear these questions over and over and over again, and it's annoying. I mean, when I was in college, my dad used to say to me all the time, I think every other weekend when I came home, son, are you still single? 
Are you not dating yet? What's going on with you? Are you okay? You need help? Is, is there anything I can do to help you? Why are you not dating? And I was so annoyed with him, and I was so frustrated, and I'm like, Dad, if you ask me again, I'm going to punch you in the face, and then I'm going to run because you're 6'4 and 250 pounds. <laughs> but it's like, dude, stop asking me about whether or not I'm single, if I want to be married or not. It's so frustrating. In the disciples' minds, they didn't care anything about the man's current state of health. All they wanted to know was, why is this man blind? Why is this man blind? In their minds, they were equating his blindness with some past or uh, some past sin in his life or his parents' life. So in other words, he was asking, like, Jesus, is he being punished for sin in his life? Why is he blind? I want to know why. And it reminds me of growing up as a kid. I was the why kid. And I always asked my mom why questions. Because some of the things she said, I'm like, that does not even make sense. So I'm going to ask why. For example, no liquids past 6 p.m. Well, why can we not have Kool-Aid, great Kool-Aid at that? Why can we not have Kool-Aid or fruit punch or soda past 6 p.m.? That doesn't make sense. Why do we have to leave the park at this time? Why can't we eat this? Why, Mom? Why are babies in women's stomachs and not men? Why, Mom? Why? And I'm just constantly asking why questions. And this is what she always said. She would look at me and she would go, because... Or she'll say this, because I said so. And I'm like, well, why does it have to be done your way and not my way? And she'll go, because that's just the way it is. And I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't even make sense. But I wanted answers. I wanted to know why things were the way they were. And this is what the disciples are saying. Why are things the way they are? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where you're so frustrated and so confused with God that all you can do is say, why? Why me, God? Why do I have to have this story? Why do I have to have this struggle? Why do I have to go through this pain? God, why did this relationship not work out? God, why am I single? God, why did my marriage end in divorce? God, why, why, why? And maybe like the disciples, you two are trying to figure out the cause. And you find yourself some days just going through this cycle of emotions and constantly asking yourself, am I the cause? Am I the reason why I'm still single? Am I ugly? Am I unattractive? Am I overweight? Am I too skinny? Did the relationship end because of me? Why? What am I doing? What am I doing wrong? It's me. I'm the cause of my singleness. I'm the cause. And this is what the disciples are wrestling with. They want to know the cause. But what I love about this verse is Jesus is so amazing and so intentional and brilliant behind everything that he does. Because he knows what the disciples want to hear, but he's not going to point them to what they want to hear. He's going to point them to purpose. He's not going to give them the cause for the blindness, but the purpose in the blindness. It's not about the cause of the blindness, but the purpose for the blindness. It's not about the cause of your singleness, but the purpose that God has for your singleness. It's not about you sitting down and being depressed, trying to figure out why am I still single. It's about you discovering the purpose in your singleness. In verse 3, Jesus responds, with the purpose. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened 
so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There is purpose in your singleness. There is purpose in your divorce. There is purpose in your widowhood. There is purpose in your suffering. There is purpose in our lives in every season of life. There is nothing in our lives today, absolutely nothing, that God did not see happening before the foundations of the universe. He saw it happening. There's nothing in our lives today that's outside of the control of God. He's in control. And there's nothing in our lives today that is without purpose. But what is that purpose? Maybe you're here this afternoon and you can't see that purpose. Point number two, the purpose is God's glory on display. God's glory on display in your life. You see, wherever you are today on the spectrum of singleness, whatever emotions you might have, whatever thoughts you might have, Jesus cares. He does care about you. He wants you to bring those thoughts and those feelings and those emotions to him because he cares about you. And he wants to walk with you day by day. I love what the Apostle Paul says. He says, day by day, I'm being renewed in the image of God. The imagery there is day by day, as Katie would say, you have enough grace and mercy for that day. And so Jesus wants to walk with you through those emotions, through those things that you're dealing with. However, he wants to point you to a greater purpose. And that purpose is bigger than you. And that purpose is bigger than your relationship status. One of the things I love about God is that he is not this weak, insecure, fragile God who can't handle our emotions, who can't handle our thoughts. I'm a highly emotional guy. My wife would say I'm always emoting, if that's the right word. Um, I'm either high, like, yes, life is great, the glory of God, and then I'm like low, like all hell has just broke loose, like I need help, something's wrong. Like I'm just constantly, that's just kind of how I'm wired. I don't know, maybe something's wrong with me, but whatever. I'm just a really emotional guy. And so often I'm going before God in prayer and I'm complaining and I'm frustrated and I'm upset and I'm despairing and I'm just constantly pouring out my soul before the Lord and pouring out my heart before the Lord, crying out to him with the things that are going on in my life. And I realize that God invites us to do that. And he wants us to do that. God invites us to come to him with the things that trouble our soul. Matthew eleven twenty eight says this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. 1 Peter 5, 7. It says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. Jesus cares for us. God doesn't dismiss how we feel. He doesn't dismiss our thoughts. He invites us to come to him. A good example of this is uh, in John chapter 11. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And right before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he has a conversation with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And so they're grieving the loss of their brother. And they're frustrated. And so Jesus arrives to the scene late in their, in their terminology. He's late, and Lazarus has already died. And he gets to Mary, and he sees that Mary is weeping. And this is what the text says in verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, he was deeply moved and in spirit and troubled. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. He had compassion for her. 
But notice what the text said in verse 33. What's the key word there? He saw her. He saw Mary weeping. Do you get it, guys? Jesus sees you. He pays attention to our lives. He, lo- he knows the things that trouble us, and he's there for us. He cares about us. And so he sees Mary, and he's compassionate towards her. He sees the blind man in John chapter 9, and he has compassion for him. And then he heals him. And that's what the text means when it says that the work of God or the power of God might be displayed. Verse 3 is saying that the work of God on display in this blind man's life was healing. But here's the tension. You're going to have to hang on here because there's there's some tension in this passage. The tension is, is the text saying that God allowed the man to be born blind or God inflicted blindness upon the man at birth so that one day when Jesus came, Jesus could heal him publicly and then everyone would say, wow, praise and glory be to God. He's so awesome. Sort of. What the text is not saying is that God is this insecure God who inflicts pain and suffering and he enjoys not answering our prayers for a season, but then later on he comes around and he takes away the pain and he takes away the suffering and he answers our prayers and he goes, hey, everybody, look what I just did. You see how I answered that prayer? Praise me, adore me. Hey, everybody, look, I'm great. Like God is not doing this so that we can praise him so that he can get glory out of insecurity. It's almost like my seven-year-old, he's constantly jumping up, showing me things like, hey, daddy, look at me, praise me, love me, tell me how great I am. That's not what God is doing. That's not what God is doing. God is not this weak, insecure God who is looking for everybody to praise him out of insecurity, but he's painting a picture here in this text. God is showing us that Jesus does have power to take away pain and suffering. He has the power to heal, and he has the power to answer our prayers, and Jesus has the power to give you a spouse tomorrow if you wanted one. In fact, Jesus has a spouse to give you, the power to give you a spouse in the next hour if he wanted to. Like, that's just how powerful and how great he is. He can do that. But what this text is showing us is that the glory of God on display for this man, this particular man, was healing And this resulted in the praise to God. Verse 38 of that text says that people worship Jesus because the man got healed. People saw the power and the work of God on display in the blind man's healing, and they worship God. However, the other truth to this is that sometimes that's just not how it works out. Sometimes the glory of God on display is an unanswered prayer. Sometimes the glory of God on display is you not getting what you want. Sometimes the glory of God on display is being single for the rest of your life. It's not getting to be married. It's not getting to be remarried. Many of you probably have been praying for a spouse for a long time. You've been praying that the right guy will come along and probably ask you out. You've been praying that God would open your eyes to see who the right female is to ask out. Many of you have probably been praying that your marriage would not end in divorce, and it ended in divorce anyway. And it seems as if God is just not answering your prayers. And I've been there on a number of places in my life where I'm constantly feeling like, God, where are you? Why are you not answering my prayers? But guess what? The Bible is filled with men and women who suffered and got unanswered prayers. Have you ever read Hebrews chapter 11? They say it's like the hall of faith, but it looks like all these people who um, suffered and they prayed and they didn't get what they wanted. 
The Bible is full of those stories. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he had a thorn in his flesh. And the scripture says that Paul prayed to God that he would remove the thorn out of his flesh. And do you know what Jesus said to him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Jesus' response to him was, I'm not going to heal you, but my power will be on display through me sustaining you. That's what Jesus did to Paul. Jesus himself. One day he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the cross. And the Bible paints this picture of Jesus in the garden. And he goes to his Father in heaven in prayer, not once, but three times. God, let this cup of wrath pass me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. God, in my body, I am feeling the weight of the world. I have consumed the sin of the world. God, I am overwhelmed to the point that I am pouring out sweat in the form of blood. God, the cross is too much for me to bear. They are about to kill me. I am about to lose intimacy with you. God, you are about to turn your face away from me while I'm on the cross. Is there another way for the salvation of the world? Nevertheless, God. It's not about me. It's about your will be done. God, I'm coming to you again a third time, and I'm asking you, God, can you please, Daddy, let this cup of wrath pass me by? Do not pour out the wrath that the world deserves upon me. Do not let me take the punishment for their sins. They deserve eternal damnation. They deserve hell. They deserve to be separated from your presence. Why do I have to pay the penalty? Why do I have to die on the cross? God, can you take this cup of wrath away from me? Nevertheless, God, it's not about me. It's about your will being done. That's how God responds to Jesus on the cross. God is saying, this is how I'm doing this thing, Jesus. This is how I'm doing this thing, Martha. This is how I'm doing this thing in your life, Paul. This is how I'm doing this thing in your life, Derek. This is how I'm doing this thing in your life. Insert your name. Sometimes the answer to your prayer is not you getting what you want, but getting what God wants for you. Some of you will get married. Some of you probably will stay single for the rest of your life. Some of you will remarry. Some of you, if you're in a dating relationship right now, it might end. And it's going to be painful. And to hear these things is, is probably painful and it hurts. And I want to encourage you, the thing that I, I love about God is that he doesn't call us to autocorrect our emotions. It's not, man, I got to get myself. This is reality. Let me get my emotions. Suck it up. Get over it. Get over it. This is life. This is the hand I've been dealt. Suck it up. Some days, guys, I can't suck it up. I can't. I had an emotional day this week. I had so many work projects going on. I was trying to prepare for this. I was praying for this. I was nervous about this. And so many things were going on in my head. And I'm driving down the road. I'm, probably, I'm not embarrassed to say this. I was driving down the road. And I just started crying. And I was like, God, I can't. I can't suck it up. 
I can't get over my feelings. I don't have the power. I don't have the ability. I don't have enough strength to just get over how I'm feeling. And so, God, I'm coming to you and I'm pouring out my feelings. And I'm saying, I can't, but you can, Jesus. I'm weak, but you're strong, Jesus. You have power. And God is so good because he gives us what we need in that moment. He's not calling us to autocorrect our emotions and our feelings. Jesus walks with us day by day in those things. However, he's reminding us that he's doing something far greater in and through us that we we can ever imagine. We can't even fathom what God is doing in us. It's his glory on display. It's his work in our lives to sustain us. You see, there is a lost and dying world. And one of the greatest apologetics is people who don't know Jesus looking at your life and going, how in the world is your faith still intact? I mean, why do you still sing songs about Jesus? Like, why do you still go to church? Why do you still love him? Why do you talk about this Jesus so much? Look at your life. You said you've been praying and he's not responding. Why would you even follow him? And you can look at those people and you can say, For I consider that the sufferings and the hardships and the challenges of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed to me. You can look at those people and you can say, and I know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who have been called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I might not have all the answers. I don't know why I'm still single. I don't know why the relationships haven't worked out. I don't know why I still have joy. I don't know why I still have peace. I don't know why I'm single and content. But I do know this, that Jesus Christ loves me. He left heaven. He died on a cross for me. I am saved. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is just enough good news for me to say hallelujah and amen because Jesus loves me. He walks with me and he standing by my side and everybody should say amen because I feel like I feel like getting hype in here like this is the gospel guys this is the good news of the gospel and the world needs to hear it the world needs to see it so they might turn and worship Jesus your story is glory do you know how many people I've ministered to who've come from single parent homes whose father was abusive whose father was an alcoholic whose father left them, whose mom got pregnant out of wedlock. It seems like those guys flock to me for some reason. And one day I'm like, why am I discipling all the guys who have daddy issues? And it's like, oh, yeah, I had those issues. Jesus was with me, and he helped me with those things, and I've grown in those things, and now the Lord is calling me to pour out and disciple these guys. Your story for his glory. God is writing a story in your life, and it's not about your glory. It might not be the the most prettiest story, but it's for his glory, and you will be amazed at the people that God surrounds you with so that you might invest and disciple them and encourage them. Your story, his glory. I'll close with this. When I look at the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, what I see is a story.